Hello and welcome to Smart Mouth, where we give you a digest of the week's news and we try to sound smart about it. Dan Brecky, editor of KQED's blog News Fix, uh, what's on your radar? Drought. Drought. Shocking. It is shocking. It's shocking to look out at uh, that brown landscape getting already brown in, in late April, and it's going to get nothing but browner. Uh, lots of news this week. Uh, the biggest thing probably is that uh, State Court of Appeal in Southern California struck down a water conservation rate plan that had been imposed by the city of San Juan Capistrano. The plan would charge low rates for people who are good at saving water and charge very high rates to water hogs, people who are using 1,000 gallons and more a day. And the court said under the state constitution, uh, a provision that we passed. voters passed almost 20 years Was ago. It prop? Prop it was the prop, propositions? Yeah, it was yeah. Prop 218, which honestly I hope I... Well, I don't want to say how I hope I voted on it, but I don't even remember voting on this. But we passed it. And what it says is no uh, agency, no local government or agency like a water district or a park district or something like that can charge higher fees to rate payers to local residents than the cost of providing the service. So they said that, uh, the court said that um, San Juan Capistrano simply hadn't shown that their punitive rate structure for heavy water users had anything to do with, with the, the actual cost, cost of the correct, water. Yeah. Correct. So Joshua Johnson, KQED's morning newscaster, uh, have you been keeping up with this? I have. I have indeed. And I think that what has happened in San Juan Capistrano has spooked a lot of agencies. They're Correct. scrambling to go back mm -hmm. and check their regulations and make sure... a lot of cities are using this tiered rate structure is what the formal name of it is. Exactly. Charging more for people who use more. I mean, Santa Cruz did it recently and charged extremely high rates. Pleasanton just brought back their fines for water hogs, but they're one of the best at conservation in the state. They've conserved about 28 percent from last year. San Jose is working on its new restrictions. Those would govern things that tend to use a lot of water anyway, like filling up swimming pools or washing cars. So car washes in San Jose are, if you want to invest in something, San Jose car washes. Recycled water at recycled, those car washes. There you go, recycled and reclaimed water. So you have these local agencies across the Bay Area and California who know that it's going to cost more to tap water from certain sources. Some water districts have reservoirs that are farther away or that feed into like parts of the delta that are a different kind of a cost structure to provide water. It's not the same giving you water from the reservoir in town as it is working with other districts that are like three districts away and saying, hey, we need the water over there. Unlock these locks and get them to us. Right, so the and whole it might cost a cost. lot to, to get that water. Exactly. So the whole question of cost is because beginning to be less opaque by necessity. And a lot of uh, water districts that have had these tiered rates felt they were safe if they called them penalties. That was the case in Santa Cruz. And this court in Southern California said, you can call it uh, a penalty, you can call it a conservation rate, you could call it a motherhood rate or an apple pie rate. Unless you show the cost structure, it doesn't matter. It's still against the Constitution. Well, my thoughts on this are, uh, I'm just going to repeat myself like I have in all these podcasts, <laughs> which is, what is wrong with people? We know that these tiered water rates uh, have been widely considered to be fairly helpful in conservation. We're in a very dire strait here in terms of water. So, like, why are people even challenging this? Like, why can't we all come together as a state and just, you know, accept that, 
hey, this tiered water structure works for people, it rewards conservation. Why are people challenging this? Well, I, I hate to sound like the rich old guy, but get off my lawn is basically why we're challenging I, it. I, I mean, there's there's an aspect of people coming west and having these beautiful lush lawns, even in an arid state like California, that's part of why people show up and invest in their homes and that whole curb appeal thing. That's a that's a big deal, and it's visceral. I mean, asking people to just give that up is logical, and it may even be, quote-unquote, the right thing to do, but, you know, that doesn't make it easy. Yeah, water is so deceptively cheap here. Uh, if you break down the per-gallon cost, people are paying pennies. Yeah, it's ridiculous, Two or three right? cents a gallon. And as long as they turn on that spigot and get that nice mm-hmm. stream of treated water— and they can turn that same supply out on their lawn and, and garden. Boy, that's something they're used to, and they do not want to give it up, and they're not going to give it up without a fight. And that, that's we're seeing that around the state. And I, but I, I was the take I was going to take is I think this is sort of one of those unintended consequences of our propositions, which is it sounds like a great idea. It's true that your city shouldn't charge; they shouldn't be milking us to make money for services because you know they're basically working for us. But in this case, like water is obviously becoming a very scarce commodity. We need to conserve. But this proposition sort of, you know, sort of handcuffs handcuffs them from doing what we need to do as a state to survive or what we need to do for the greater good. Well, in this, we're in a crisis. And, and one of those people who expressed the same opinion you just did was the governor. The governor said this is a really bad decision and you're, you're taking away one of the most important tools to, to help us in this crisis. But you know what? I feel like people don't have the same sense of what it takes to get water as we have the sense of maybe what it takes to get power. Like we understand geothermal power or solar power. We understand understand that power comes from the sun, the wind, fossil fuels, and so on. I don't think people have a sense of what it actually takes to send water from the Sierra Nevada to San Francisco or from Hetch Hetchy Reservoir to get here. Like I I personally don't have that kind of a visceral understanding. What it takes is you go to the kitchen, you turn that little knob. That's it. No, but I actually agree with you because I was sort of thinking about this. Um, Many, many years ago, we knew, like, you know, century ago, we knew the value of water because you'd have to go to the well and you'd have to pump it. And then you're not going to, like, just spill water all over the place or, you know, use that whole thing for your dishes, right? You're going five miles Yeah, because you're going to have to go, right, get more water. And five feet of snow to get more water. And um, But I was thinking we've even maybe gotten even more removed from it because of, like, bottled water, right? Like, because I was thinking— like uh, back in the day when I was a kid, I sort of remember being thirsty. Like if you're on a trip and you there remember was... being thirsty, <laughs> I do. Like what was that like? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, it was like it was still this sort of sense. But now it just feels like nobody even has any sense of where water comes from. It's abundant. You can buy it everywhere. You know, I don't know. It just feels like we're that much more removed. I think that's a good point. And but... I will recommend. I know we got to move on, yeah. but one of my uh, former colleagues at the University of Miami, Sanjeev Chatterjee, did a documentary about that very thing. It's called One Water. Hmm. And if you go to onewater.org, it paints a very clear picture of just how good some people have it and how bad people in other parts of the world have it in terms of water being the primary almost like resource human rights issue mm-hmm. of the globe sure. right now. Very, very powerful piece of work. Onewater.org. And Josh, what's your uh, what's your pick of the week? My pick is on police reform. There's been a lot going on in Bay Area law enforcement agencies in terms of improving the way that the police deal with the public, particularly in the wake of Ferguson and Staten Island and now this matter in, in North Charleston, South Carolina. This week, San Jose kind of began the conversation about the successor for its independent police auditor. This is currently 
retired Judge Ladoris Cordell, who's been very aggressive about saying you need to be more open, you need to be more compassionate with the public, you need to you know not be quite so opaque, you need to have more diversity, you need to really take on the idea of bias as it relates to policing. Replacing, or rather finding a successor for Ladoris Cordell, is going to be hard because she comes with a tremendous pedigree and she's just a spitfire. But they have to find somebody. So they're beginning the process of public meetings. She just gave her final report this week. And so that process is slowly beginning to move in San Jose. Also, the, the conversation about body cameras continues. San Francisco Sheriff Ross Mercurimi is proposing outfitting the deputy sheriffs at one of the jails at the Hall of Justice with body cameras. Mercurimi's up for re-election, so that is, is also Is he going thing. to wear one? This is one of the first uh, jails in the country to do this. Is that correct? There aren't many jails that use body yeah. cameras. Mostly body cameras are associated with patrol officers. Right. And jails are already under such heavy surveillance that I think the idea of putting personally worn cameras is something is something kind of unusual. And it's also a response uh, we should tell people because there were these gladiator type gladiator type fights that we allegedly, I guess, uh, prison guards are putting on with prisoners as the gladiators. But sorry, I interrupted you. Here. No, that's actually that's actually a good point. There's been plenty of alleged stories about prisons all over the country where all kinds of crazy things go on from fights that the guards bet on to sexual affairs between the guards and the inmates. I mean, all kinds of stuff. To extreme levels of violence on the part of guards toward prisoners. I mean, there's yeah, and I don't know that New I would York call it sexual affairs case. when it's a prisoner and a no, guard. No, well, basically I'm, sexual assault. Yeah, and I mean, that's, well, yeah. yeah. I'm I trying just, to be polite about it, but, you know. But, yeah, but Dan, you were going to say about this, this New York case. Well, I, Liz, that's just one of the highest profile cases in, across the country where uh, this happened um, years ago now, but a prisoner was brutally uh, beaten. And the consensus among medical personnel is that he would have died except for the fact that a prison medic said, you have to get this guy outside. And the allegation, of course, was more relevant to our conversation is that this is a general problem. I think we, we have a sense, I mean, partly informed, ironically, by fiction, by movies. Uh, Oz and uh, whatnot. Well, Shawshank Redemption. Yeah, right? there you go. That prison is a violent place. It's about punishment. It's pretty lawless inside there. And uh, we also are used to turning a blind eye to it until something comes up, as in this case, where Jeff Adachi, I think the public defender, said, look at what we found out happening inside the San Francisco City Jail. Although, you know what? Some people take the same perspective to law enforcement, policing on the streets, that some parts of this community are just dangerous and it's it's got to be a crackdown or you're just going to kind of get overrun by crime. And this seems to be a shift in the focus of not viewing people as suspects, but viewing people viewing people as citizens first and doing the investigating, trying to really be peace officers first. Right. Less of an occupying force, which is what critics often call the police in those uh, in those areas we're talking about. I mean, one thing that, that I have to say, the question that's always in my mind about this is, you're right, this is getting so much attention right now. I mean, there's this case in Baltimore where the— uh, prisoner uh, being uh, transported in a van wound up with a nearly severed spine. And there is legal action underway there now and an, and an investigation. But these crimes have been going on for a long time. I mean, are we going to maintain our focus on this now? 
I mean, it, I was what, actually going to ask you that same question because a lot of the things you had said about the woman in San Jose are things that I remember hearing in the 90s, or is it the 90s now with uh, Rodney King? You know, mm-hmm. community policing, we need more diversity, blah, 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 like all the same things. And I'm curious as to whether she's had a real impact in San Jose. And are we seeing that... You know, it just feels like words to me, and it's the same words I've heard two decades ago. Well, well, there's two pieces to that. LaDoris Cordell, I think, is having some impact. She is the independent auditor, so she doesn't have, say, the power to, you know, fire officers. She can suggest, but she has begun to really put some evidence and some thought behind the public conversation about this, and she's not the kind of person you can just kind of ignore and explain away. So that's one piece of it. The other piece of it, which I was going to mention earlier, is in Oakland— the federal judge who's overseeing Oakland's reforms is giving them a deadline to improve how they make sure that discipline officers serve discipline. There have been a number of cases where officers were caught or at least believed to have done something they shouldn't have done, and a punishment was supposed to be enacted, and it never was. So Judge Felton Henderson, who's been kind of dogging OPD for a long time over these reforms, has said, you're on the clock now. So there's there are see, reforms that from outside. Question, though, like, hasn't though haven't that hasn't that been going on forever that they that the federal judges have been overseeing OPD? I mean, I've been here about four years in the well, Bay Area. Well, this is an outgrowth of this writer's case, which involves civil rights abuses by a, a small group of officers. Um, Going back to the the late nineties, yeah. And I mean, and I guess what I'm just saying is, like, I've been here for about five years, and I remember hearing about this five years ago, and only now he's asking. No, no, for a he, deadline. no, you no, know, I mean, but, no, they, but how long does this conversation have to keep going on? I guess. Well, I, I I think what I think the truth is that it has to keep going on forever because you can't. This is too important to to relax on. We've got two minutes. They're telling us. Oh, okay. All right. I'm gonna. Um... Should we go to the <laughs> lightning round then? Uh, sure. Time for the lightning round. A couple things that have been on my mind that uh, I think are important for people to know about. One is the uh, that San Francisco is revisiting these regulations it passed on Airbnb. They have found that uh, since the law went into effect a couple of months ago, number one, hosts are not really registering. Only 10% of the suspected number of hosts surprise, in the city. Surprise, surprise. <clears throat> surprise, surprise. And number two, the planning department, which was given the ugly job of trying to manage this, hasn't issued a single citation for a violation. Again, surprise, surprise. But, um, I mean, we can't even, like, go after people who – we don't even really know how to go after people who are wasting water, right? Isn't that the big conversation now? <laughs> like, I mean, I can't imagine. Enforcement but, is tough. Yeah. Well, my lightning round is um, about the closing of the Lex, which is believed to be the last lesbian bar in San Francisco. And it's sort of interesting to me. We've been talking a lot about gentrification changing the face of the city in terms of uh, pushing out low-income, middle-income people, artists, bohemians, um, all the things that have always defined San Francisco. But, uh, you know, now it's sort of like the gays are sort of, its is it becoming a less of a gay mecca? I think it, San Francisco used to be one of these places where gay folks sort of came to be gay, right? A friend of mine was saying, like, she came to San Francisco after graduating to be a professional gay, and her day job was just to, to support that. To be a professional gay. I didn't know you off- you offered a degree in that. <laughs> well, just this mecca where you could finally come out and meet your peeps and have a, a vibrant social life and really feel a part of something, right? And, uh, and is that disappearing? 
I certainly hope not. I certainly hope not. My lightning round item, very quick, very quickly. Cesar Chavez, the legendary California labor leader, was in the United States Navy after World War II before he became a civil rights activist. This week, he finally got the full military honors at his gravesite that he was due. They did the whole ceremony, the rifle salute, the folding of the flag. They presented it to Chavez's widow. They played taps at the memorial site in Keene, which is a few miles southeast of Bakersfield. The Cesar Chavez Foundation says that his activity in World War II spurred him into activism because he wanted to make sure that the freedoms that the Allies had fought for for the world came down to his people here in California, farm workers and other disenfranchised people. And that's it for Smart Mouth, KQED's look at the week's news. Thanks, guys. Sure. Thanks, Quina.